Well, we all make decisions in life about the future based on the people and the things that we trust and we put our hope in today. We do that with politics, don't we? I mean, whether you are in a place where you want to make America great again or build back better or hope and change, we put our trust every couple years, every four years, we put our trust and our hopes and our dreams in politicians. How's that working out for you? We also put our hopes and dreams financially in investments like the stock market that rise and fall. We plan out our week, oftentimes thinking about the weather or the prediction of the weather. I don't know if I just missed it yesterday, but I didn't realize we were going to get a deluge, and so I left my golf clothes, which is really important. My wife calls them my babies in the back of my truck. I've got a, I've got a Teneo cover, but it's not waterproof, and so missed out on that. So predictions about weather, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. I don't know what trusted weather sources you rely on, whether your local news, Space City Weather, recommend that one, or who you go to, but the weather changes. Maybe you're a Texans fan. Sorry about that. Maybe you're a Cowboys fan. They're meeting up today. Cowboys are 9-3, and three, playing in Arlington. They're a 17-point favorite after your beloved 1-10-1 and, 10 and 1 Texans. This line, though, the spread, I'm not a betting man, but the spread is 17. What are you going to do? If you're a betting man, who are you going to bet on? I mean, the Cowboys are good, but December is not too kind to the Cowboys normally. What's your prediction? See, here's the deal. Whether we put our hopes and dreams in sporting events or teams or weather or stock market or politics, where we put our hope and trust dictates decisions every day in our lives. But these things change. You can't count on life being certain. Life is uncertain. So where do you put your hopes and dreams, C3? What can you count on? What do you trust in? Who are your trusted sources? And most significantly, where do you put your hope for eternity? Your hope for eternity. There's probably not a bigger question in life. Where do you put your hopes, dreams, trust? Who are you counting on for eternity? Is there a sure source that you can count on? Is it in whatever your parents taught you or grandparents taught you? Is it in the latest spiritual fad that's out there? Have you built your own spirituality? Are you trusting in? What are you trusting in this morning, Christ Community Church? Those are big questions. And here's the deal. We need to look at God's track record. Because here's the beautiful truth. God always makes good on his promises. He always makes good on his promises that are rooted in his grace. And that's probably no more true than any time in the year when we look at the promise of hope that Christ would bring. So this morning, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we'll be in chapter 9. We come to our second week, at least, in Advent. The last week, we looked at the important need that Christmas meets in our lives. We actually looked at the patriarch Noah, and we saw this sobering statement in Genesis chapter 6 that our need for Christmas is rooted in our own sinfulness and our depravity. 
And we see that there was sin for 1,650 years in the heart of man that grieved the heart of God. But what would God do about it? He would give us his grace and his favor. And we said last week that there's a place even in the creation account about eight verses after Adam and Eve fall into sin where God promises to do something about it. He promises a baby who would crush, would be born that would crush the serpent's head, crush sin and death. And you see the line of that promise coming all the way through the Old Testament. We're going to skip over to Isaiah and the prophets, but you see other patriarchs. You see the promise to Abraham that he would have land, seed, and blessing. But the beautiful promise of chapter 12, verse 4 is this, that all the families, all of them, not just Israel, all the families of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Israel, and you come to David, and God promises David that the, his kingdom would reign, there would be Messiah to come that would reign on the Davidic throne forever and forever. And so the people of God in the Old Testament were looking for the promise, and they wanted more information about Messiah. I can't think of a better place to go than the book of Isaiah to look at this promise, maybe in more color for us, the people of God, the prophets of God. You know the prophet's role, right? That God would come to a prophet, call a prophet, and speak to them, and they would tell the people of God what God had to say, and it usually involved repentance from sin or something in the future that was being predicted. So they not only foretold what God said, but they would foretell what was coming. And you come to chapter 7 that we read last week, and we saw in chapter 7 that there's these hints of a promise of a child to come, and you get to chapter Nine, one of the most incredible of all the Advent promises of a coming king. A coming king who would rule. Page 573 on the Bible next to you will be in Isaiah verses chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. I want to show you three hope-filled Christmas promises that change everything for you. That change everything about the darkness of sin in your life. That change everything about who God is and what he did to make things right, and also the faith and trust and security you can have in a ruler who will reign forever and ever. Check it out. Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll walk through verses 6 and 7 here in a bit. Verses 1 through 5 give us some context and also give us the first piece of this prophetic, things that will happen in the future, promise. Look at it with me. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's northern Israel. But in the later time, that's future, he has made glorious the way of the sea, northern Israel, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have Seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, and they are glad when, the divide, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as the day of Midian, for every boot of the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. There's a lot of background here, so I want to just tell you what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, like many prophets, is coming to the people of God, reminding them how they've turned away from their God and they ought to turn back to God. 
If you look in chapter 8, what you see is the Assyrians are coming. Actually, they've come and they've already taken over the northern part of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, which we're looking at here. Because of, and why is this? The reason we know is from Deuteronomy because they continue to sin and walk away from God. And so God judges them. And he's brought the Assyrians on them. And look at the end of chapter 8. If you have a Bible in front of you, verse 22, it says, They will look on the earth and behold, there will be distress and darkness. And they will be thrust into not just darkness, but thick darkness. Here's what the people of God are doing in captivity while being oppressed. They If you look back at chapter 8, they are seeking out, rather than seeking out God, they are seeking out mediums and necromancers to reveal to them what will happen to them rather than seeking God. And God just says the darkness gets thicker and thicker and thicker for the people of God. There is darkness in northern Israel. You ever been in a cave and you leave the entrance of a cave and you still see some light and the further down you go, the less light you see until it is utter Darkness. This is what sin does when we continue to sin. And this is what's happening to the people of God. Yet, look at it. In first, the first couple of verses, there's a contrast. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. That's Israel. There's something coming in the future that's going to bring hope to Israel. Specifically here, northern Israel. Do you see it there in verse 2? It says, but in the later time something's coming. And look at what that something will bring. Look at verse 5 real at it, and you go, well, it's, it sounds like it's present tense. It's saying like the light has come, the light's shining. There's a little something, sorry, this is Greek, this is Hebrew, excuse me, not Greek, maybe Greek to you or Hebrew to you, but one of the tenses that you see, this is English class, didn't know if you knew, it's English class today, but there's a prophetic perfect voice. It's as if Something is happening today, but it's actually happening in the future. So he's speaking prophetically in the future, but it's like it's happening today. So he's imagining it happening today. And you look at it here, and he says, the people who walked in darkness, that's Israel, that's the people of Galilee, and their sin have seen the great light. That's what's coming. Who dwelt in the land of what darkness? Thick, deep darkness. And on them the light has shone. The light will one day shine even though they're in thick darkness. You see it there? And look at the next result of that light. What are they going to experience one day? They're going to experience joy and gladness. And they're going to rejoice in the future because a light is coming. And the burden of the oppression of the Assyrians will be lifted. And then he gives an example. Look at it there in verse 4. As in the day, so this has already happened, he tells the people of God like this, like the time of Midian. Do you know the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7? This is what he's referencing here. It's a beautiful picture too. We've been talking about light coming into darkness. Remember the story of Gideon? He's got his 300 army of 300, and he goes against the Midianites who are oppressing them and leaving them in darkness. And what do they do? They light towards only 300 men against thousands and thousands of Midianites, and they come. God tells them to come in the darkness, and they light torches, and they surround the Midianites. Thousands and thousands. There's no way, humanly speaking, they can win this battle. 
And the light comes into the darkness, and the Midianites are confused. And they turn against themselves, and they kill themselves, and God wins the people of God this beautiful battle. You see the picture here? The people of God here are in darkness. They're in thick, the thick darkness of sin. And there's a promise, a future promise of light to come. Here's your thought. If I'm summarizing these five verses, this incredible future-looking prophetic promise of Messiah that brings hope to the people of God then will bring, also brings hope to you now. God makes good on his predictive promise. That's the beauty of sitting here today is that we can look back and say, did God do it? And we can say, yes, he makes good on what he says he's going to do. So here's your first thought. The sun brings light to our darkness and joy to our weary hearts. That's what this text is teaching. The sun brings light to our darkness and joy to our weary hearts. This is what we see in the life of Jesus, that the life will bring light, the life will bring the light to men. That's what we're doing here with an Advent wreath, remembering the light of the world who brings hope and faith and joy and peace. We see Jesus speaking of himself. He says he's the light of the world. So here's the truth of the gospel wrapped in this this morning. The Son of God comes in a manger and heaven is lit up. The nativity is lit up. And we see that this light had come by way of the sea to Galilee. If you look at his life and his death and resurrection defeats Satan's dark yoke of sin and death. Much like the Midianites. You see, Satan's dark kingdom has been routed. How has it been routed? By implosion. Just like the Midianites, they imploded on themselves and Satan has turned his evil weapon of death, the cross, and killing Jesus and God has used it for good and his glory and your forgiveness and my forgiveness. Do you know that truth? You ever heard the name Robert Louis Stevenson? Famous writer, poet, Wrote Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, lived a long time ago in Scotland, grew up as a little boy in Scotland. And back in those days, they didn't have automated lights down the street. And so he was walking one day with his parents along the streets of Scotland, and he noticed something before dusk. He noticed the lamplighters, because back then they had to come and light the lamps of the streets. And he noticed them, and he was fascinated by them, these men who were hired to come and climb up a ladder and open the glass and take their lighted torch and put it in and walk all the way down the street so that light would come. And he said to his parents, as it was turning light, and he saw these lights lit, he turned to his parents and said, look, they're punching holes in the darkness. That's exactly why Jesus came. He came to punch holes in the darkness. That's what he came to do, to punch holes in the darkness. And guess what? If you know Jesus and you've received the light of Christ, that's your job as well. First, to be captivated by the light and then to punch holes in the darkness that the light would shine in it. See, the sun brings light to our darkness and joy to our hearts that we might be captivated by the light of Christ. And maybe you're here and you know that truth. 
You're here, you don't know that truth. And maybe you're here and you know that truth, but the reality of what sin does, that it often dampens that light. And maybe nobody even here, even your family, knows about the darkness in your own heart and your soul and sin that remains. And know that God is still there. Know that God can reach into that darkness. If you'll reach out and bring light to any situation that you're in. Any deep, dark sin that is eating at your soul, he's there. See, the sun brings light to the darkness. But how would he come? How would he come? Who is he? And what would he be like? Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Notice, we're going to get real granular in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. A child is born, that's, that's the son's humanity. To us, a son is given. It doesn't say a son is born, it says a son is given. See, that's his deity. You see in verses six, and you're gonna keep seeing it, you're gonna see his deity and his humanity. The son to come. And not only that, not only that, but who's this son for? Who's this child for? What does it say? To us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So here's your second thought this morning. See, the son came in the person of deity wrapped in the package of humanity. Catch that again. I was sitting last week at lunch with some other pastors. There were six of us. And there was a guy that was waiting on us, and we were chit-chatting and talking, and then we prayed, and then he knew we were Christians. He's like, man, I'm sorry, you know, sorry about my language, sorry about this, sorry about that, but hey, y'all are Christians. Can y'all tell me more about Advent? I've been going to church with my girlfriend, and I'm trying to put together Jesus being God and Jesus being man. Think about this again. The son came in the person of deity wrapped in the package of humanity. Verse six, the first part of verse six. A child is born, humanity. Hebrews two, if you want some other text, that Jesus is fully human. Hebrews two fourteen talks about the children. All children are flesh and blood. And it says of Jesus that he was the same. He's 100% man, but Galatians 4.4 4 also says, in the fullness of God, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, like everybody else in his day, and yet, keep looking, for to us a son is given. This speaks of the gift of deity that he's given, that he's already existed. The way the church fathers said it is that he was, he was begotten, not made, that he's always been. See also John one one that there's an eternal nature to this coming son this child he is the god man put that together one guy said it this way the marvelous mystery of the manger is that god translated deity into humanity without without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity only god could do this it's interesting because not only is he God-man, he's not only meant to be put on display. You know, when you come to the, the, the story of Christmas, you see the angels declaring this. You see Jesus 
the Christ put on display, and that's a beautiful truth, the glory in the face of Christ, the light that shone, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that, but it's more than that. Both in this text, who's it for? Who needs it? You and me, to us. That's what next week's text will say as well. Next week's text is Luke chapter 2. If you want to get a head start, it says this, the, the angels announce the coming of Messiah, the coming of the child to the shepherds, the normal people like you and me, not just the kings and the princes. And what does the angel say to the shepherds? For unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So could I say it this way? The Son came in the person of deity wrapped in the package of humanity for you. Wrap your mind around that. For you. Why does it matter? You might ask. Why does it matter? Why do I need it? Because humans can't fix their problems. We can't fix our sin problems. The Bible says only God can forgive sin. And so we needed God to become flesh and be our advocate and our mediator that we might have forgiveness of sins, that Christ might stand in the presence of his Father who is just and say, He's with me. She's with me. As God, man, as deity in humanity. See, in his deity, Christ, the Christ, shed his blood for you. He overcame sin and death and gives forgiveness. But Jesus, the man, Jesus, the man, is your advocate, your mediator before the Father. He sympathizes with your weaknesses and struggles and takes your burdens upon himself. But there's something else here. Look at the second part of verse 6. There's so much here. What else do we know about this future king? He's a king with four names. You see them? The list. There's four names. All all four couplets are, are double names. And guess what? They reveal the same thing. They reveal both his humanity and his deity. Look at them. The first one, a wonderful Counselor, the word in Hebrew, wonderful, is actually translated miraculous. Wonderful, you might not get that from your reading, but it's miraculous. That he works wonders, that he's a wonder-working, miraculous counselor, that he's an advisor, he's a friend, you come to him. Interestingly enough, remember Adam and Eve, the counselor that came to them, the serpent? See, the serpent's counsel wasn't wonderful, it was deceptive, but Jesus' counsel is wonderful and not deceptive, and it's miraculous. And I would say to us in the room as we think about the importance of having people to speak into our lives, whether it's a friend or someone in the church or a professional counselor, those are important pieces. If you've never been to counseling, you ought to go to a biblical counselor, someone who gives you God's perspective to help you, you need that in your life. Perhaps your marriage needs that. Perhaps your parenting needs that. Perhaps deep, dark stuff, you need counselors. But listen, if you're going to go to an earthly counselor and not come to the wonderful counselor, the miraculous counselor, you're missing out. See, the first place we go with our problems, C3, is the wonderful, miraculous counselor who can really change what's going on in our lives. And then the mighty God. Mighty is warrior, hero. It kind of conjures up this battlefield imagery. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ is the captain of our salvation. He would take the field of Calvary 
and engage the titan forces of sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave. Men, are you connecting with this dust settled and emptitude stands in an eternal monument to the victory of our mighty God. He's a worthy defender, Jesus is, who shelters me in and through and from conflict. That's who Jesus is. He's also an everlasting father. And you may go, how can Jesus, the son, be an everlasting father? That sounds like we've got some Trinitarian problem and that's not what's going on. In the book of Revelation, it says of Jesus that he is like uh, the eternal, excuse me, he is the father of eternity. The idea here is that this child, this son, would be fatherly in his care for you and for me. He's never too busy. He provides, he protects. This is who Jesus is. He's a watchful father who cares. He's also here the prince of peace, the fourth one. You notice how these miraculous counselor, God and human. Mighty God, human, divine. Everlasting father, divine, human, prince of peace. See, the context to remember of this passage when we think about Jesus, the coming son, the child that would be born. When you think about the context of Isaiah, it's a dark, dark time in the nation Israel, and there's no peace. And so the people of God then would look at this and say, he's going to bring peace? I haven't seen peace my whole life. See, he will be the greater Gideon who won this victory who was opposed, what kind of peace does Jesus bring? He, he brings peace with God, and he brings the pre- peace of God. Try saying that. With God, of God, that we might even have peace amongst each other. Imagine that. That's what Jesus will bring. So he's light in a darkness that produces joy. He's the God-man who brings salvation and care. But if he's a king, how's he going to rule? That's my question. How is this king going to rule? I've seen some bad ones. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. Of his increase, of his government, that's his rule of peace, there will be no end. Nobody's voting him in. Nobody's voting him out. The throne of David, which is a prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7 over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with how? With justice and righteousness, not corruption from this time forth and forevermore. When is this time forth? When he comes, here's what I believe. Here's some theology behind this a little bit. When does his rule begin? When does it end? What is it like? His first advent, I would say, establishes his rule. And yet one day we will see the fullness of his rule that we do not see right now. So it's an already not yet reality that Jesus has come in his first advent and he's established his kingdom. And you look around and go, what kind of kingdom is this? There's brokenness in the world. It's an already not yet. We're still waiting on the fullness of the kingdom. Go read the book of Revelation. And you see the fullness of his kingdom and his rule and his reign that will endure forever. And so this is what we see. He will rule completely. Look back at verse 6. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He will bear the weight of government upon himself. So he will rule completely. He will rule eternally. He will rule powerfully. Hebrews 1.8 says it this way. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and your scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Can you wait for that? I guess we're going to have to. Think about the brokenness of kingdoms and the brokenness of rules, even in probably what's the best form of government that you could have, the corruption that we see in our own world. And I think, as I think about this, and I think about government, and I think about what we live under, the Bible calls us to be good citizens. It calls us to do things like participate and vote and engage, and that's good. Not everything is evil about politics, even though it feels that way sometimes, that we should engage in our culture. But listen, if our hope is wrapped up in the next election. That's a moving target. And we have misplaced our priorities. You remember the Psalms and what the Psalm, Psalm 146 says? It says, put not your trust in princes, but put your trust in God who saves. There's no earthly king or kingdom that can save So, again, let me ask you, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your trust? You put it in the weather, put it in the stock market, your sports team, you put it in the politicians' hands, the kings and the kingdoms of our world. Listen, since the dawn of time, we've been trying to do this thing, ruling and reigning. How's that working out? There have been kings and kingdoms that come and gone. Once you think about it, you think about Egypt, you think about the hope and pharaohs and they built magnificent things that we still can't make total sense of the pyramids and yet they did it on the backs of slaves you think about the assyrians we're talking about here they brutally ruled and only left body bags behind them the greeks while they brought much good and culture and philosophy left to themselves there was a a moral defilement that still reeks the pages of history The Romans had power over legions and built roads and infrastructure, but brutally claimed other lands. And they destroyed themselves from within, morally. You think about the great American Revolution, that all that it brought from the Middle Ages. Remember the Middle Ages? As went the king, as went the country, good or bad. Seen that in biblical ways. So in reaction to that, American Revolution, where we don't want a king, We want a democracy, so the American Revolution, 19 presidents in. Abraham Lincoln said this about our form of government and the people. He said, government here has proven to be far from perfect. It's corrupted by the sinful hearts of all the people. 20th century experiment where government force sharing for support for the supposed benefit of the poor, i.e., Primarily communism, also to a degree socialism. What has it proven to be? Historically, historically, it's proven to be a gross economic, social, and moral failure all over the world. Just do the history. That's not a political statement from me. Just look at history. There's no utopian form of government. Churchill even said it this way. He said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So your third point is this, the son's perfect kingdom. 
The son's perfect kingdom will increase, it will expand, and it will have no end. What kingdom are you trusting in? Ouch. I had all week to think about this. It's convicting. What kingdom am I trusting in? The perfect king with the perfect kingdom or the one that's over me today? See, Isaiah chapter 9 Verses 1 through 7, as we're in this Christmas season, thinking about hope, and we're thinking about faith. It's this beautiful prophetic text where God kind of flexes his muscles, and he says, here's what's going to happen, Israel, in your darkness. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring the light of Christ. I'm going to bring joy to your heart. I'm going to give you the gift of my son, who's a person of deity wrapped in humanity. And his kingdom will have no end. It will increase and have no end. This is why the end of the scripture says, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen? See, I think I'll hedge my bets there. I think I wanna be all in there, that I can count on him, that I can look to him for joy. So where's your hope? We think about Advent, where's your hope? What trusted sources do you put your faith in? Here's your takeaway. Hope has a name. The name of Jesus who brings light to your darkness, who brings joy into your heart, who offers forgiveness at the cross, and whose rule and reign will endure forever, and you can be secure. So we've seen so far in a couple weeks, we've seen the great need that we have in our darkness for a Savior, and this week we've seen the promise of that Savior to come, come, and next week we'll see the announcement. Luke chapter 2, the announcement of the coming King born in a manger by the angels who proclaim Christ coming to the shepherds, and we will see peace and joy that Christ brings. Let me pray.